There are so many aspects of the Buddhist teachings about the nature of suffering and the possibility of freedom that resonate with our own common sense view of the nature of reality, the nature of ourselves, of the world. The importance of non-harming as the foundation of morality for people living together in community seems obvious. The understanding that everything in our lives and experience is constantly changing and that the more we hold on to that which changes, the more we suffer seems obvious even if we're not always living by it. But there's one aspect of the teachings which offers a profoundly different view, which is not our basic common sense understanding of things. Really, it really challenges the entire way we view ourselves and the world. And it's this understanding which makes the Buddha's enlightenment such a remarkable event in all of the different cultures of awakening, of liberation. It's this particular realization which stands out as the great jewel of understanding. This is the deep realization, the deep experience, vanata, selflessness. The understanding of the basic insubstantial nature of all experience. That there's no one there behind experience to whom it's happening. This realization or understanding of selflessness, which is so central to the understanding of liberation and of the Buddhist teachings, is also the most puzzling. If there's no self, who came to the retreat? If there's no self, who makes effort? Who suffers? Who gets enlightened? And these are the questions that come up in the mind when we talk of no self. There's no self, who gets angry, or who falls in love, or who has their own particular unique memories? Sometimes people even just hear about selflessness and get a little anxious or a little afraid as if somehow in the moment of realizing this, suddenly we disappear and there's an empty space in the hall. (laughs) As the observing power of our mind becomes stronger through practice, we begin to get glimpses or tastes of what selflessness means. We begin to see that this notion of self is not really what we thought it to be. It's not the body, it's not thoughts, and it's not emotions. It's not even awareness. We begin to see that this very deeply rooted habit or habitual way of viewing things, of viewing ourselves, is a concept. It's a mental construct. It's a mental fabrication. As we begin to even glimpse that self is a concept. It comes as both a great surprise and is also a huge relief. All those troubling aspects of our personality that you've been watching now for the last weeks, months, they don't belong to anyone. And all the wonderful qualities of mind, which you may have experienced, they also don't belong to anyone. They're simply arising 
in the moment, out of particular conditions. And the great relief of this is expressed by one Sri Lankan monk who summed it up so succinctly when he said, no self, no problem. Uh, That our problems come, and a great deal of our suffering comes from our not seeing deeply into the selfless nature. And so we live in this construct. We live in this fabrication of mind. So what does it mean to speak of or to understand no self? Tonight I'd like to talk of how the mind creates and why the mind creates this very deeply conditioned concept because it's very strong. I mean, our lives revolve around this notion of I, of me, of mine, of self. You go up to anybody on the street, you know, is there a self? Are you there? So this particular understanding is not a common sense view. It's quite an extraordinary turnaround of view. So how is the self, how is this notion of self created? And also, how can we be free of this illusion? Because this is the direction of our whole practice. We need to start with an understanding of what the mind is. Mind is usually explained as that faculty of knowing, of cognizance. It's the simple knowing of things. What is this knowing? When we look for it, and this is an invitation to look into your own mind, to really turn and look, see, observe, be aware of the knowing, what do we find? We don't find anything. This knowing is invisible. It's clear. It's unobstructed. It's lucid. It's empty. All of these words describing the nature of the mind. It's just the pure knowing faculty. But the mind is also more than just knowing. Because in every moment of knowing, there also arises in different combinations an assortment of mental factors or mental qualities. These are the habitual mental tendencies which in meditation we see over and over again. So these mental factors or habitual tendencies arise in a moment of knowing and color that consciousness. It's like just as a metaphor, you might think of it as coloring clear water. Colors it each according to its own function. And so mental factors like anger, sadness, or love, or compassion, or restlessness, or joy, or hatred, or fear, all of these are factors of mind, mental factors, each having their own function, working in their own way. And it's these mental factors which illuminate the whole ethical framework of the Buddha's teachings, because the Buddha was able to see which mental factors lead to happiness. He called these wholesome. He saw which mental factors lead to suffering. He called those unwholesome. That's the basis for the ethical framework, what leads to true happiness and what leads us to suffering. So there's the natural purity of mind, the natural purity of knowing, and then all of these different factors arising in different combinations, moment to moment. Now there's one mental factor which, when out of balance, is at the root of the whole notion of self. And that's the fact that we need to really understand, see how it works. Because when it's out of balance, it keeps us imprisoned 
in a whole world of concepts. Keeps us imprisoned in this world of mental fabrication. It keeps us imprisoned in the conventional notion of self, of I. And this is the factor which by itself is neutral. It's not wholesome or unwholesome. It has a neutral function, but it needs to be in balance. And this is the factor of perception. So what does perception mean? This is, a, this is an Abhidhamma usage of the word. So it kind of has a technical meaning in Buddhism. Perception means that mental factor which picks out the distinguishing marks of an experience, creates a concept for it, and stores it in memory. Stores it in memory for future reference. So just as a simple example, we hear a sound. Sound arises. That's just knowing. It's just the knowing of a sound. Perception comes in immediately, recognizes the particular qualities or characteristics of that sound, puts a concept on it, bird. We don't hear bird. Bird is a thought. Bird is a concept. We hear sound. Perception recognizes the particular quality of the sound, creates the concept bird, stores that concept in memory so that next time we hear a similar sound, immediately mind thinks bird. When perception is balanced with mindfulness, when these two are working together, then our recognition, our concept, acts like a frame for the experience, just like a frame around a piece of art, so that mindfulness can look more deeply into the nature of the experience. We may call it a bird, but when mindfulness is present, we use that perception and then drop down into the actual experience of that sound. Mindfulness brings us deeper than the concept level. There was a book, Pulitzer Pulitzer Prize winning author, uh, Michael Cunningham, wonderful book called The Hours. This is just one line from the book, and it's, he's he's a very beautiful writer. That everything in the world has its own secret name. A name that cannot be conveyed in language, but is simply the sight and feel of the thing itself. Everything in the world has its own secret name. A name that cannot be conveyed in language, but is simply the sight and feel of the thing itself. So I like to think of mindfulness as revealing the secret name of things. That name beyond language. The experience of it in itself. But when there's perception without mindfulness, which is our usual way of being in the world, except for yogis, but the usual way of being in the world is where perception is not balanced by mindfulness. And so we know and remember only that surface recognition of things. There's a surface recognition or perception creating a concept fixing the concept in memory, but we stay on the level of the language. And the concept begins to concretize our view of the experience. We're not dropping down to the secret name of things, to the experience in itself. And so our experience becomes very limited, or one-sided, or superficial, because we're relying on the surface perception 
and not tuning in to the deeper reality. But just as an example of this, and this is a story I've told often, but it so highlights how this works, how perception without mindfulness limits us. An old friend of mine, this is from years ago, had a son, has a son, and at that time the son was quite young in grade school. And he came home one day and he was telling the story about a teacher asking the class what color were apples. You know, and most of the kids said red or yellow or green. But the son of my friend said white. And he said, no, apples are not white. Apples are red or yellow or green or golden. But the kid was very insistent. He said, no, they're white. So this went on and on and on. Finally, the kid was getting very frustrated and the teacher was getting very frustrated. So at last, the the little kid said, well, what color is it when you cut the apple open and look inside? It's white. But the usual perception, the habituated perception of just seeing things from a certain viewpoint with a certain concept. Oh yeah, apples are red or green or yellow. And the thought of it being white is just a whole different way of seeing something. But if we're not open to that, if we don't see how our perceptions can be limitations on experience, we stay very limited in our understanding of the world. In some way, I think art is a great gift, all of the arts, because a really creative artist helps us see in a new way, frees us from the prison of our own preconceptions, frees us from the prison of our own concepts. When we don't observe things carefully, there's one deeply habituated perception that we have about the world, we have about ourselves, that becomes the origin of many inaccurate conclusions. And so it causes a tremendous amount of suffering and grief. It's a perception that keeps us from understanding what's true. And that is the very common view, the very common perception that most human beings have of the solidity of things. We live in the world as if we ourselves and everyone else and the things in the world, we live in the view, in the perception that they're solid and independently existing. And that's how we navigate through the world. As long as this perception of solidity is fixed, which it is for most of us to a very large extent, we don't deeply, deeply understand the truth of impermanence or the truth of the essential insubstantiality of phenomena because we're viewing things through this view, through this perception of fixed objects, of fixed experience, solid So if, in fact, things are not solid, why do we believe they are? Why do we live in this illusion? There are two main causes for this delusion, this ignorance. One is, we think things are solid and fixed because of the rapidity of change. You know, just as a very simple example, if somebody were twirling a torch of fire you know, very quickly, it would appear to, it, to us as an unbroken circle. We would perceive it as a circle of fire. And we wouldn't be seeing the continually changing movement which was creating the illusion of that being something fixed and more solid as a circle. Or an electric light. 
we're not aware of the changing nature of the current of electricity. It's too fast for us to see. You go to the movies. You'd have a very different experience if you could see the separate frames of film. You probably wouldn't sit there very long. <laughs> Although, in a way, that's what we're doing here. You know, it's to sharpen the mind so that we begin to see the rapidity of change, the fact that things are not solid, not continuous, that that's an illusion. Okay, so it's because of rapidity of change and our minds, until they're trained, don't see it. And so we just live in the appearance, the illusion. The second reason we have this perception of things being solid is because for the most part, we observe things from a distance. We don't look closely enough or deeply enough. And so we don't see the composite nature of all phenomena. Just as an example, and this could be done with anything, but I'll just use the example of looking off you know, out into the horizon and we see a distant hillside. And it just, from a distance, it looks like a mass of color. And then if we get closer, we see that the mass of color are really a lot of trees. And then we look closer and we see, well, what's a tree? A tree is just made up of you know, leaves and trunk and branches. And then we look closer, well, what's a leaf? And it's all these, whatever they are. <laughs> you can say I'm a great botanist. <laughs> you know, and the trunk, it, as we get closer and closer and closer, tree dissolves, there's, there's no tree there. The closer we look, the more carefully we observe the concepts that we have that condition our take on reality as being solid, fixed things, we see all of that dissolve. I mean, take the most common object of experience, and if we put it under a high-powered microscope, it would be a completely different reality. The very solidity of it would disappear. So it's because of a superficial perception, because we haven't trained ourselves to look deeply, that we get caught in this very limited perspective. We see this tendency to solidify our view of the world through concepts, creating concepts, fixing them in the mind, keeping us on the level of superficial perception, which leads to thinking that things are solid and fixed. We see how this works in so many different areas of our lives, and it's sometimes with disastrous consequences. That is the creation of concepts and staying on that level of concept. So I'll just mention a few this evening which will illustrate how limiting they can be and how much suffering they can cause. A very common concept is the concept of place. You know, the fact that the earth is divided up into separate countries and states. And One of the most remarkable experiences, as they reported it, of the astronauts who circled the earth, was the understanding of the of the earth as a unity. There were no boundaries you know, of countries when they were looking down from space. These boundaries are just our own creations. And yet how much suffering has come from attachment to these concepts and boundaries and nationalistic wars. And, and it's not only on that grand scale Some years ago, I heard a report on NPR, public radio, where it talked about people so attached to the concepts of their area code 
that they needed to go into therapy when their area code changed. <laughs> there was so much investment in, I don't know, some symbolic something or other. <laughs> I mean, we started out here with 617, it went to 508, and it felt like a lowering of status. <laughs> And then from 508 to 978. But we could meditate, and so we worked through it. <laughs> Concepts of ownership. I mean, this is strong. We have an idea that we own things. You know, it could be possessions that we think we own. Well, what does it mean to own something? And what could it possibly mean? You know, we're in a certain relationship to it. We sit on our zafu. But what does ownership mean? It's a concept and it has its uses. I'm not suggesting with any of these that they don't have their uses. They do. But they're simply fabrications of mind. They don't point to any inherent truthful relationship. It was see, the last year or the year before I read this really disturbing book. It was called King Leopold's Ghost. And it, it was about King Leopold of Belgium. I don't know whether it was one or two. Who basically claimed what was used to be called the Belgian Congo, as his own personal, I don't know what he called it, his country, his, his, it belonged to him, he owned it. And because the great powers conspired to buy into that concept, the horrendous treatment of the people who lived there all stemming from this idea that King Leopold owned it. And this is just one example, of course. We could find countless examples of this, of the injustice and exploitation that comes from a misuse of this concept. But we all do it in our own even little way. How would you feel if somebody came into the, if you came into the hall and found somebody sitting on your cushion? It'd probably be a moment, you know, of something. Probably wouldn't be, oh good, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. So it's deep. I mean, we have this view of the world, of this concept. Big one, very big one. Concepts of time. We have created, through the way we perceive things, we have constructed the notion of past and future. And you've probably noticed by now how much of the time we spend lost in these concepts. A good part of our lives spent lost in the notion of past and future. It's very interesting to actually examine and look deeply, well, how is this concept being created? Where does it come from? Really, when we look, it's very simple, although deeply patterned. We're sitting, certain thoughts arise, and they're thoughts of a certain kind. Memories, recollections, We create a concept. We perceive these thoughts, pick out its distinguishing mark. They're thoughts of a particular kind. We create a concept past about these thoughts. And then with great mental agility, we somehow take this concept past. I'm not quite sure what we do with it, but it's something like tossing it behind us as if the past 
is a reality back there. We do the same with future. We're sitting, minding our own business, thoughts come of planning, anticipating, imagining, you know, what might be. Again, we recognize it, that's perception. We create a concept future, toss it out ahead of us as if the future is a reality out there waiting for us. But when we look more deeply, when we're not settling for a superficial recognition, what actually is going on? The past and the future, or the way we experience the past and the future, are only as thoughts in the moment. That's what's happening. But it takes quite a bit of mindfulness to get underneath the concept and to see, yeah, this is just a thought. Now what's so amazing is that as concepts of past and future walking through life with these concepts, these are a huge burden. It's like we're carrying mountains on our shoulders. The mountains of the past and the mountains of the future and relating to our idea of past and future and the worry and anxiety and hope. But what's really happening, and this is to be seen just by observing, this is not a question of belief, what's really happening in the moment, that it's a thought. Now a thought is very light. When we see it for what it is, past and future collapse into the moment as being just a thought. Simple example of this, which I'm sure you've experienced many times. It's very instructive to watch your time thoughts about the retreat and how they condition your experience of that moment. You can be having a really hard day. You know, you're walking, you're sitting, and the mind's discouraged and depressed and doubting. And, and the mind will think, oh, five more weeks. I hate this. <laughs> and we get lost in the future of five weeks. And that thought becomes so burdensome and it's just, we can hardly bear the thought of five more weeks. (laughs) But what's happening? It's not five weeks. It's a moment thought. But when we don't see it for that, we are tremendously burdened by that concept of time. Or you might be having a great day, you know, and things are light and humming along. Oh, I wish I could be here for another year. Yeah. That also is just a thought. Not only do we want to see past and future as concepts, again, which have their uses. I'm not suggesting we never employ them because they're useful. But we're mostly imprisoned by these concepts and burdened by them. Not only are past and future concepts The present moment is a concept. Now that's liberating. (laughs) To let go of even the concept of the present. This is expressed in the Dhammapada. Buddha said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. And cross over to the further shore. With the mind wholly liberated, you shall go beyond birth and death. Letting go of any concept of time. In that, we drop into the timeless. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership. We have lots of different concepts, mental constructs of self-images. We create stories or images of ourselves, how we present ourselves to ourselves, how we present ourselves to others.
As soon as we identify with any one role or image, it's already a limitation, a contraction. You remember the old, you know, when I was in grade school, you know, where you poured the plaster of Paris into these molds. That's what we do. When we, when we get lost in a self-image, it's as if we're pouring ourselves into a mold. And then we wonder why we feel constricted. If we see that process, we don't need to be caught by it. I mean, the self-images will arise. That's fine. It's just another arising concept. Let it come, let it go. We don't have to be caught by it. I can't remember whether I read the story of Rio Khan and the children this year. Anyway, it's a really nice story. And it's Rio Khan, of, as you know, is this Japanese 18th century hermit, poet, monk, wonderful being. And what, what very much characterized him was his freedom from self-image. And it really was living a very liberated uh, life. So this was this is from a book. It's, it's a biography of him. Uh, the name of it is The Great Fool. Uh, so this was written by the, by the son of a friend of Ryokan's. When the Zen master went out, children would follow him. Sometimes they would shout at him loudly, and the master would shout back in surprise, throwing up his hands, reeling backward, and almost losing his balance. Wherever the children found the master, they were always ready to do this. Ordinary people frowned on this behavior. My late father once questioned the master Ryokan about it, and he laughed and told him, When the children surprise me this way, it makes them happy. When the children are happy, it makes me happy. The children are happy, and I'm happy too. Everyone is happy together, and so I do it all the time. (laughs) There's no truer happiness than this. It would be a nice way to live in that kind of freedom from self-image and just being responsive with that kind of joy in the moment. Concepts of place, of ownership, of time, of self-images, there's a long list. Even things that seem more fundamentally who we are turn out to be concepts as well. Things like age, and race, and gender, and culture. What color is your mind? How old is your breath? Is the pain in your knee male or female? There is a certain level of experience where these concepts no longer apply. And it's not to say, as with all the others, they do point to certain aspects of our experience. So it's not to say that those aspects are not there. But they're not who we are. And there's a level of experience, a level of understanding of reality that goes way beyond any of those limiting concepts, which have their uses but are very limiting. I'd like to read a poem by a Polish woman who won the Nobel Prize for Literature uh, some years ago, a few years ago. Probably will not pronounce her name correctly. Swislawa Simborska. And she just points, she just points in this really great poem about the nature of concepts and how it limits our understanding of the world. And contained within the poem, and I'll I'll highlight it, there's one stanza which is as clear a pointing to the nature of mind as anything else I've read. So 
The name of the poem is View with a Grain of Sand. We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name. Our glance, our touch mean nothing to it. It doesn't feel itself seen and touched, and that it fell on the windowsill is only our experience, not its. For it, it is no different from falling on anything else. This is the is the pointing out to the nature of the mind through metaphor. The window has a wonderful view of a lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. The window has a wonderful view of the world. The whole world is viewed through the window. But the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. The lake's floor exists floorlessly, and its shore exists shorelessly. Its water feels itself neither wet nor dry. And all this beneath the sky, by nature skyless, in which the sun sets without setting at all and hides without hiding behind an unminding cloud. A second passes, a second second, a third, but there are three seconds only for us. Time has passed like a courier with urgent news, but that's just our simile. The character time is invented. His haste is make-believe, his news inhuman. So much of what we relate to in our ordinary common sense way of living is in the world of concepts, our own mental fabrications. And until we pay careful attention, until we drop down into the secret name of things, we don't see this. Our deepest conditioning and the source of so much suffering revolves around one concept that is really at the center of our ignorance and the center of our suffering. And that is the deeply habituated view or concept we have of self, of I. It's the idea that there's someone to whom experience is happening. We create a reference point, as if all experience is referring back to someone who's having it. The Buddha spoke to this very directly. He said, there is action without an actor, doing without a doer. There's suffering without any one who suffers. There's enlightenment without any one who gets enlightenment. As Meninger used to say just so many times, and it's so deeply embedded in my mind, the phrase, empty phenomena rolling on. Everything we call self, this whole concept of self that we've created in our minds, when we look for it, There's nothing to find. It is a mental construct. Why is this concept so strongly habituated? Why do we hold on to it so tightly? Why do we live our lives from this place, from this reference point? because we have not undergone the training sufficiently, that's the one we're all engaged in now, to look more deeply into not the concept, not the surface perception, the conventional understanding, but to really look deeply what is the nature of the actual experience that's happening moment to moment. 
Now on a surface level, we have a sense of our body and we easily identify with this. Who am I? Yeah, this is me. This is, this is usual. This is how people usually relate to this body. Why? Because we don't look carefully enough. As we begin to examine it from many different angles, we begin to see this body is not one thing. It's not a self. It's many interrelated systems going on. You know, and we look at it sort of medically or anatomically. You could see it just as skeletal systems and muscular systems and the organs and the circulatory system and the, I don't know, the hormonal system. Which one of them is self? It's just processes going on. Or we could look at it on the cellular level. Self disappears even further. Look at it on the atomic level. Mostly empty space. So where is the I? Where is the self in that? But normally we don't look carefully enough. It's quite amazing in meditation. We might not be looking at it anatomically, but we're looking at it on deeper and deeper energetic levels. And in that mode, also the solidity completely disappears. We begin to feel the insubstantial empty nature of it. And we don't see this, we are attached to this body as being I, as being self. It has many difficult consequences. We get very attached to our bodies, we get very attached to other people's bodies. And so when they change, as they all do, and decay and die, the more we're identified with this as being self, the more we suffer. And it's all based on a misperception through not seeing deeply enough. How much of our sense of self comes because we are lost in our thoughts about things? Lost in the stories. You know, one of the, one of the great gifts of a retreat like this, there's no missing. There's no missing how much of the time we're lost in our thoughts. <laughs> Has anybody not seen that? <laughs> I mean, it becomes so obvious. There's just such a deep honesty about meditation practice because there's no avoiding it. Okay? We see what's going on. Pay attention to the difference between when you're lost in a thought, just some mental story, some mental creation, that whole world in which the sense of self is there and strong because we're lost in the story. Contrast that with that moment of awakening from being lost and remembering, oh, that was just a thought. The difference is extraordinary. It goes from a contracted, deluded, dreamlike experience of self to an open, expansive, empty, spacious sense of selflessness. And we have that experience every time, in every, every moment that we awaken from being lost. That's why it's helpful to pay attention to those moments. And we create the sense of self a lot through our identification with the emotions. We get lost in them. We get carried away with them. We, we create this story of who we are in them. But if you remember from the beginning of the talk, all of these emotions and mind states that come are simply mental factors arising out of conditions. Love loves, and anger angers, and fear fears. Each one is doing its own thing. They don't belong to anybody. They're not I, they're not mine, they're not self. It's just another process in this constellation of experience. Awareness itself Consciousness itself is not self. 
And so we want to be careful not to be identified with the knowing, thereby creating a witness or an observer. The knowing or awareness or consciousness is itself simply an impersonal functioning. What we call self is a designation that we give to a certain constellation of experience, you know, of thoughts and feelings and body sensations. And it arises, and it's also familiar to us, so we have this superficial perception of this constellation, of this appearance. We call it Joseph, or self, or each one of us. And then we just assume that that self is really there. But when we look carefully, we see it's not really there. It's just these changing elements. So now I'll talk about what I know you've been waiting for the whole retreat, the Big Dipper. (laughs) (laughs) I think I talked about it in the first part, but (laughs) since there were part two people, I get to tell it again. (laughs) This is my favorite. Okay, tonight's too cloudy, so you probably won't be able to. (laughs) But on a clear night, go outside, look up at the sky. You're probably all familiar with the constellation, the Big Dipper. Okay, I'll skip all the... (laughs) I'll I'll get to the punchline. There's no Big Dipper. (laughs) It's just a concept. You know, we look up, we see certain stars in a pattern, and it's very familiar to us. And so immediately we see it, and the mind thinks, Big Dipper. But there's no Big Dipper up there. (laughs) It's just points of light, you know, in a certain relation. And what's so interesting is that by the habituation of that concept, one consequence of it is that when we look up at the sky, even though the concept has some uses, but another consequence of it is that the concept separates those stars from all the other stars in the sky. So instead of looking up and really opening to the unity of the night sky, the familiarity of that concept picks picks those particular stars out, or they're separate in some way from everything else. It's our own attachment to the concept which has that limiting function. Self is like Big Dipper. It's a name, it's a designation for a constellation of experiences. So when we say there's no Big Dipper, does anything change in the sky? Everything is as it always was. In exactly the same way, our realization of selflessness does not change anything. Our experience is as it always was and will be. We're simply seeing it in a truer way. We're seeing it not limited by the conceptual overlay. We're seeing it as it is. Then we can use the concept when it's useful but we're not imprisoned by it and we're not limited by it and we don't contract in our identification with it. But just as it's very difficult to go out at night and look up at the sky and not see the Big Dipper, very difficult not to see it because it's so trained in our minds. It takes training to begin to experience this constellation of experience, of sensations, thoughts, emotions, knowing, awareness, consciousness, sights, sounds. Very difficult to experience this particular constellation of experience without adding the concept of self. And this is our practice. Seeing things as they are, free of concept, free of construct. And when the concepts arise, which they do, and that's fine, we see them for what they are. 
through our deepening realization of this, deepening realization of the selfless nature of phenomena, that everything is just as it is, and that self is a construct, an overlay, as we drop into this more and more, we develop a very deep wisdom and sense of connection with everything. Because we're seeing that there is no one there to be separate. And so we don't need to rely then on particular forms of relationship to feel connected. Connection is there because there is no separation. I'd like to close with this teaching of Kala Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century and has since rebirthed. There was a young Kalu. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We're living in the world of concepts. There is a reality, and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. Selfless. Being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, we are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Sit for a couple of minutes in the secret name of things. Let your mind be the view through which everything is seen. As you get up and walk or continue with your sitting, see if you can drop into that place of experience, for example in the walking, free of concept, where it's not leg or foot or body, which are all words, and it's just the bare experience of the sensations being felt. just dropping into things as they are. Have fun.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.